0: Hello, my name is Philip Carlson, I'm Chief Economist of Boston Consulting Group, and you're listening to the BCG Henderson Institute podcast series. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Charles Goodhart and Manoj Pradhan to discuss their book, The Great Demographic Reversal, a detailed study of global demographics and the consequences on inflation and debt. Charles Goodhart is Professor Emeritus of Monetary Economics at the London School of Economics. He was a member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England between 1997 and 2002, and he is a fellow of the British Academy. Manoj Pradhan is the founder of Talking Heads Macro, an independent macro research firm, a former MD in Morgan Stanley's Global Macro Team, and an academic before that. It's a great pleasure to welcome both of you. Thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to be here. So let me kick off with an observation. The way inflation is covered on Wall Street and in the financial press is decidedly tactical, focusing on the short-term data flow and drivers. I think our own coverage of inflation is a more structural analysis of inflation risks, but still rooted in cyclical pressures. Essentially, the beauty of a structurally anchored regime that has to be always defended cyclically by policymakers. Now, what's really striking about your book, I thought, Is that you bring inflation down to a single structural narrative, demographics, and you look at how demographics is turning into a headwind globally. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of your core argument and why you think demographics will end our era of low and anchored inflation? It's not
1: quite right to say that demographics and globalization were the only factors leading to disinflation over the last three decades and that the reversal will lead to more inflation over the coming decades, because there is no doubt that monetary policy and the monetary regime were much better after the 1990s with central bank independence and in inflation targetry. But our argument was that the achievement of the 2% inflation target wasn't actually terribly hard for central banks. There was an underlying structural disinflationary pressure brought about by demographics and globalization. And those long-term, slow-moving trend factors started to turn into reverse in about 2010, and eventually will mean that the underlying context over the next three or four decades becomes much
2: more inflationary than it has been in the past. The intuition broadly, uh, if I may add, is very simply that you've got an intergenerational friction over here. The key message that we try to get across is that the working age population is almost by definition disinflationary because you earn less than the marginal product of your efforts and you save for the future. Whereas if you've got the young and the old, you don't. Let's look at some of the empirics
0: of the 20th and 21st century and see how it fits with your focus on demographics. I think the first question that came to my mind reading your book was, you know, the last time we lost a good inflation regime at great cost to the economy, markets, society was the late 1960s in the United States, where... Essentially, you know, a good inflation regime was gradually broken, but that occurred against the backdrop of really strong demographics. Both the baby boomers, female labor participation, civilian labor force was growing very strongly. How do you square that with the idea that demographics is sort of the primary driver of inflation?
1: It's certainly not the only driver. And what you had then, as you had in the UK, uh, was a group of those in power who had been brought up during the Great Depression. And for them, unemployment was the great evil. And until really about 1950, inflation had only occurred during wartime, uh, so that they thought that the basic background uh, would be relatively steady prices. And if it wasn't relatively steady prices, their first line of defense would be prices and incomes policies. So what they did was that they tried to run the economy at about as hot as they could and lower unemployment. In my country, the UK, they aimed for an unemployment uh, ratio of below 2%. It has a certain reminiscence of what is actually going on at the moment. Run the economy hot until everybody that can be employed is employed. And that was essentially what people were trying to do. And they were able to achieve that through Keynesian type fiscal policies in which monetary policy became subservient. And the Bretton Woods system of relatively fixed exchange rates
0: and the gold standard became abandoned. So do you think that on the other side of big inflation on the way down, Do you think it was necessary for Paul Volcker to inflict the pain, or do you think it would have resolved itself gradually because of the tailwind from demographics? I guess, ultimately, the question is about the role of policymakers. Is there sort of a a great man theory of economic history where a single agent had a massive outsized influence on the inflation regime that we have enjoyed since? Or do you think this would have happened regardless of what Paul Volcker did in the early 80s?
1: I think that Paul Volcker's contra inflationary policies were necessary and brave in some large part because by the time you got to the end of the 1970s, inflationary expectations had become totally unanchored and people expected inflation to continue. And it would have taken really quite a long time for the underlying context of greater globalization the switch of production to the low-wage economies like China, and so on, really to have their effect. Clearly, monetary variables are enormously important in dealing with inflation, but that they are a very strong supporting underlying concern, uh, which operates in the longer run, where people who only look forward to short-run cyclical forecasts of one or two years ahead uh, will tend to take them for granted. And not realize that when they change dramatically, as they are now changing, that it will change the basic context. Instead of inflation being easy to control, as it relatively has been after Paul Volcker took the measures to bring uh, inflation down, inflation will become much harder for a combination of government and the central bank to bring back under
0: control. Let's talk a little bit about the consequences of your analysis. What does it mean for inflation, debt, and so on? Let's start with the kind of inflation that you anticipate. Is it structurally higher inflation, but essentially stable at a higher level? Is it a return to the 1970s of high and high volatility inflation? What is the fear that you think is in store based on your analysis?
1: There are a whole series of unknowns, of course, In the short run, we think there's going to be a blip in inflation. I think now it's more or less agreed that there will be for a whole series of reasons as we come out of the pandemic and we get a return to normality. If the big figure remains below four, then I think central banks will claim victory. If the big figure is between four and five, there'll be a lot of heart searching, but the central banks will do nothing. The big figure is over five. Then I don't know quite how policy will change. Then, of course, after this blip, the central banking community seems to believe that inflation will go back to and fairly quickly and easily back to its two percent target. We think that the experience of higher inflation and the continuing policies, the combination of the effects of the very high monetary monetary growth combined with continuing high fiscal expenditures, together with the increases in unemployment benefits and so on and so on, will bring about a much earlier return to labour bargaining power and therefore lead to higher inflation, continuing higher inflation, than central banks now, uh, now imagine. So that we don't think that after the blip, that inflation will return to target easily or simply. We think that it will be significantly above target, by which I mean that uh, central banks will be faced with inflation of over 3 perhaps over 4%, continuing through 2022 and
2: 2023. What's interesting here is the landscape, the geographical landscape of inflation might be fascinating in the sense that In the past, the hyperinflation candidates or high inflation candidates even used to be emerging markets. This time, what we've seen is that many emerging markets, particularly the ones that used to have high interest rates, high real rates even, have entered the pandemic without really a growth model in place. Large negative output gaps that they could not close, inflation that would not rise. And the divergence that we've seen in the distribution of policy support, across the world hasn't really done much to bridge the gap and that may create a really peculiar story where you might get inflation upside and risks coming to the advanced economies with a little bit more of a punch than we had seen in the past and emerging markets not really quite scaling the same heights which would be immensely pleasing to them but not for very good reason that would be because they haven't had policy support they haven't had really a strong model of growth in most places And so that divergence, I think, is going to be absolutely fascinating going forward. Well, let's
0: look a little bit at the timeline for inflation and the levels uh, that you already touched upon. So, you know, I first encountered your work on demographics in in 2017 when clients on the buy side, you know, they would point to your paper. I think you published it in the Bank of International Settlements, and they they would point to that. So that would be part of the conversation. And yet here we are four years on. And structurally, the inflation regime hasn't moved at all, I would say. In fact, you know, to put it bluntly, if portfolio managers had implemented your 2017 paper, they would have lost money on that call up to this point. So if I think forward another four years, 2024, and we met again, and we're still struggling with meeting the inflation target, Is there sort of a set of factors where you would say we're willing to adjust or change our mind, or would you say, well, we just need to wait longer on the timeline and it will eventually happen? When we
1: wrote the book, it was before the COVID pandemic, and the question that we were always asked was, okay, uh, we understand that these longer-term underlying forces will bring about a different and more inflationary context. But when will it happen? And the answer to that was we didn't really have any idea. And we didn't have any idea because the bargaining power of labor had been totally trashed. Private sector trades unions almost sort of disappeared as major players in the macroeconomic scene. In the UK, the National Union of Mine Workers, which was a major force to be reckoned with, has gone. It no longer exists. Uh, Where is the UAW? Do presidents any longer talk to trade union leaders? In services, labor are not well organized, and the shift of production out of manufacturing into services has been another force, weakening labor. And the momentum of the weakening labor power has continued, and it will take really quite a long time before these underlying forces Of demography and globalization will reverse sufficiently to really strengthen uh, labor bargaining power. These are very long-term forces. But the effect of the COVID pandemic is, I think, to accelerate what we and we were fairly confident that we'd have more inflation by 2030, but we didn't know before the pandemic when it might occur. Uh, We think the pandemic and the policies to deal with the pandemic uh, will accelerate this reversal, partly because the, uh, the the blip and other policy measures to deal with the pandemic will, I think, weaken the inflationary expectations, which had become not only well anchored, but below target for such a long time. And, and um, uh, what we have is a massive great monetary expansion, faster in peacetime than virtually ever before. And this will interact with a recovery of output so that by 2022, we will have continuing high monetary expansion interacting with an output gap, which is probably moving quite sharply from being a negative uh, to uh, being uh, a
0: further inflationary support. Apologies if I'm, if I'm harping on the timeline, because I think it does matter. And if I, if I think back to the ending of your book, I think somewhere in the book, and I guess you published it the summer or the fall of, of 2020 and the sort of middle of the pandemic. But I think you do have a 2021 inflation outlook where you say 5% is going to be you know, easily achieved and maybe even 10%. Here we are sort of in the middle of April. We had a little bit of an uptick in some inflation measures because we have a weak base period from when price growth was the weakest last year in April. But beyond that, if you look at any measure of inflation that I can see in the US, there's no evidence of inflation actually moving higher. Even if I back it out of financial markets and look at inflation expectations, they've merely recovered in line with recovered growth expectations. There is no unmooring of inflation expectations Relative to growth expectations.
1: Remember that it takes a time to publish a book. And that epilogue chapter was actually written in March, uh, when the thing had just started. And we had no idea at all how long it would last. And the there is, I think, I you know, no doubt that as long as it it you had sort of lockdown and people unemployed. Or hardly employed with furlough support, uh, that it was not going to be inflationary. So the five to 10% was an expectation of what might happen when the COVID pandemic was beaten. And perhaps we were optimistic in expecting that it would get beaten by the sort of the subsequent autumn. And of course it didn't. We had a second wave. The, the, the 5 to 10% is really aimed at the 6 to 12 months after people have recovered confidence and normality returns, hospitality sectors open, and so on. In other words, if we don't get these kind of numbers by, shall we say, spring 2022, then we will have to rethink a bit. And again, remember, this was written right at the very beginning and we didn't uh, of the whole process of the COVID pandemic. And we didn't really know how it was going to pan out at all. I think we would have probably written it slightly differently had we known that there was going to be a second wave in
2: the autumn. If you even look at some of the developments that have happened since we wrote that, and there was a blog on Voxio around the same time that we published it. The strange things that have come about is, first of all, the dramatic increase in personal savings and where those personal savings are going to be deployed, I think, will be critical. Will they be considered a one-time shock to income? Will they be considered a permanent shock to income? That will mean the permanent income hypothesis is either functional or not. Will some of those flow into real assets like housing, which seems to be the case almost globally, in which case the housing market itself might turn into an accelerator for growth? In other words, what seems to have happened is because of these second and third waves, you've had much more uh, of a dampening effect on both money supply and on policies that could then be transferred into the future. What you're also seeing, despite inflation numbers themselves not picking up, is that the willingness of the service sector to raise prices in order to recoup some of the revenues they've lost or to pay back some of the zero income, uh, zero uh, interest rate but loans nevertheless that they've taken in the past seems to be quite strong, quite healthy. I mean, we're fairly sure that if the summer comes about and most travel open, you will be very hard-pressed to find a good destination of your choice with empty hotel rooms for which prices have not gone up or summer camp for your kids for which places are widely available. I think all of that is still ahead of us.
1: There's also another technical issue which is the way that housing enters your pricing indices, And you do it on a rental basis. And for a variety of reasons, there is an increasing divergence between the rental approach and the housing price approach. If you take the rental approach, which is the basis for your CPI, rentals have remained really fairly depressed for the time being, while housing prices have been rising sharply. And that's pretty much a worldwide phenomenon. If you look at prices, if you look at price index on a housing price rather than rental basis, you would already be seeing inflation significantly higher than the figures that you have.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the role of policymakers and in that world where demographics and other factors are driving a return of inflation. Do you think policymakers will fail because they make a conceptual error down the road? Are they going to come under political pressure and sort of be forced to throw away the policy learning of the last 30 years? Is it maybe just hard to do on a consistent basis and at some point they're going to you know, screw up and then we have an inflation burst that is hard to catch up with? Or do you even think that a one-off error can already put the inflation regime into jeopardy. What is the role of policymakers in that inflationary future?
1: Well, the U.S. is very much an outlier in this, in the sense that the extent of expansion both the monetary and the fiscal side has not been matched uh, really anywhere else. It is really quite, to say the least, an audacious experiment And I think that they will be fortunate indeed if inflation is limited initially and then returns to target with the kind of monetary growth figures that we've had and the strength of the recovery of output uh, that is now underway and the strength of the fiscal and monetary expansion that are yet to come. I can understand the various reasons why they've done it. And to be honest, I hope we're wrong, uh, because the kind of future that we see will be much more difficult for central bankers. And if inflation does start to take hold, the extent of debt, both public sector fiscal debt, private sector debt, is such that if interest rates then raised other than glacially slowly, It would lead to both fiscal problems and could easily introduce recession and considerable problems in financial markets, which means that a central bank which was fiercely committed to inflation targetry could easily run, turn into or face a degree of conflict with the Minister of Finance. And that's worldwide. It's not particularly in the US. And it also doesn't matter whether the government is left or right. Presidents, prime ministers, ministers of finance do not like to see interest rates rising and the potential for worsening fiscal position as a result and the potentiality for declining asset prices and even insolvencies when an election is coming up. And one of the things one has to remember is that the time inconsistency argument uh, suggested that central bank independence should lead central bankers to undertake actions that ministers of finance didn't like. In practice, ministers of finance have found that central bankers have been their best friends because they've had these massively trend declines in both nominal and real interest rates. If this turns round, and central bankers start raising interest rates, particularly against the background of the extraordinary debt ratios that we now have, there's going to be a degree of tension, to say the least, between the two arms. And in
0: our view, ultimately, governments have the whip hand. It's interesting, uh, when you think about what Donald Trump tried to do between twenty, you know eighteen and twenty twenty, I mean, there was overt pressure on Jay Powell, there was over pressure on the institution. and yet it proved remarkably resilient. The Fed did have a u-turn in its rate path at the end of eighteen into nineteen, but that was more driven by markets and how markets put the Fed under pressure. There's no evidence at this point that the institutions wavered in the face of an unprecedented onslaught from the White House, which I think is an encouraging sign. Not to say it can't happen. It certainly can. And, and even Paul Volcker in his, memory recounted an episode, how he came under influence from uh, the Reagan administration. But um, I have a little bit of trust. I, I, I dare say that hopefully the, the institutions prove a little more resilient than it might seem. Think about Arthur Burns and Richard Nixon. Yes, that was caught on the Watergate tapes. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And,
1: and throughout the the seventies there was considerable pressure on the political pressure on the Fed, which wasn't always resisted. And also remember that the government of the day has the ability to appoint chairs and appoint people to vacant positions. And ultimately, of course, Congress, the legislature has the power to um, change the independence of the Fed. The independence of central banks is
2: a little bit more tenuous than many would like to believe. If you look at financial markets and central banks, it's not clear to me that their goalposts are aligned either. So one of the things that worked in the past, like you mentioned in the last episode, is that the goalposts of the Federal Reserve and the financial markets were relatively easily aligned because you really had, a Taylor rule with no inflation issues, just growth. And you know it's much easier to be countercyclical when you've got one variable to target. I think the problem going forward is, is as follows. First, there's a very simple divergence, which I think is not really as much of an issue, is that financial markets want the Federal Reserve to be preemptive. Federal Reserve has switched from inflation forecast targeting to ex-post inflation targeting. Okay, that's fine. I think the bigger issue is that what financial markets want central banks to do is give them a solution that has a, one would call Goldilocks, where there's growth is in a certain range, inflation's in a certain range. And I think the problem is that the way central banks are thinking about it is that they are willing to target a larger amount of inflation for a given improvement in the inclusiveness of growth. And so if that is the case, if the markets wanted the Federal Reserve to act in a certain way, which is to tighten monetary policy to fight off inflation, Not only do you have to deal with the risks of the sacrifice ratio, sacrifice growth, but because of the high level of debt, you also have to think about financial instability, both of which affect the least protected part of the labor force by more. So somewhere in the inclusive reaction function today, that will really, really rub them the wrong way. And the question is whether they are willing to go as aggressively as financial markets want them to do to fight inflation, or whether they'll be willing to sacrifice some inflation in order to reach their inclusiveness goal. I don't think that story is very clear. And the goalposts have certainly shifted in a way that markets refuse to think can't be shifted back in their favor again.
0: Let's talk about debt for a moment, which is, I guess, the biggest consequence of your scenario of a structurally higher inflation world in the future. And, and I noticed in the book, you discount the idea of growing out of the debt trap, and instead you focus on... Debt defaults, renegotiations, debt jubilees, and ultimately the the idea of moving from debt to equity finance in, in a future world. So you draw a pretty straight line from demographics to inflation to debt default. I guess my question is, why is there no benign scenario somewhere in the middle where inflation moves higher, but stably higher, and you have a nominal growth rate that sits above a higher inflation rate, higher than today. So you still have a spread that is favorable where nominal growth is ahead of nominal interest rates. And that spread allows you to sustain pretty high debt to GDP ratios. I think that is, a, that is a scenario which I'd be interested to know, why does financial repression not work going forward? Why is there no opportunity for more s- sustainability? It might. It's a possibility. I would be
1: very happy if that was to occur. I think that one of the answers to that is that I think it was Milton Friedman who said that what you need is an inflation rate that is low enough so that people ignore it. And 2% was, I think, within that range. I think that 4% is not because of compound interest. So that whereas with 2%, I think it was feasible to take the view that inflation was basically under control. With 4%, the prices of many of our goods and services will be rising at a rate that people will notice much more and regard as a a basic element of the context in which they're operating. When you get inflation at 4%, inflation expectations, and the system stable at a higher target level. It might be possible, I don't know, but I think that you're moving out of a regime where you basically think that the situation is one of price stability to a situation where you are conscious that there is a relatively steady and significant inflation rate underway and your expectations and planning and pricing decisions and uh, wage demands and so on have to adjust to it. Can you avoid stagflation when you're actually going for a relatively steady four or five percent inflation? I don't know the answer to that one. I think it'd be quite a difficult exercise for
0: a central bank to manage let me ask a final question the book is a fascinating read with lots of great charts and insight It, taken together it's also a fairly dark and uh, pessimistic read of the future drawing the the line from demographics which is which is a fact of the future all the way to debt problems via inflation i guess from your perspective my question is is there anything positive to say in the structural outlook that should make us think there's an optimistic stance for what's to come? And if not, does that owe to some extent to the nature of economics as a discipline that has sort of an inbuilt darkness or or would you would you have a different reading of the sum of the argument of the book?
1: Well, let me start by saying that one of the reasons why we wrote this book has been that we think that mainstream economics has been unduly complacent in that there seems to be a general view that inflation and interest rates will remain low for as long ahead as you can see, more or less irrespective of the policy measures that the authorities take. That is unduly complacent. And we argue that we are putting forward a coherent proposition, a story of what might happen. And there are some optimistic elements in it. Uh, We think that one of the bad effects of the recent uh, decades has been that inequality within most of our countries has been increasing quite sharply. This has led to some unfortunate political developments. Uh, we think that inequality will decline. We also think that the fact that labor will become so short within countries and the slowdown or even reversal in globalization will mean that there's more onshoring more fixed investment domestically, and higher productivity per worker, uh, although the number of workers will cease to grow anything like as fast. And in that respect, we think that uh, the productivity per worker in of Japan has actually been a lot better than most of other countries. Yes, aggregate growth will slow down because of the slowdown in the working population, but it's not true that productivity per worker will slow down. We think it will actually improve. We think that productivity, which has been totally disappointing for the last couple of decades, will improve. As a result, income per capita will not sort of slow down as much as aggregate income, uh, less inequality, more productivity, more investment. Yes, real interest rates remain low, as uh, inflation rises a bit relative to the official short-term interest rates. So it's not all doom and gloom, but uh, it's an outcome that is not nearly as rosy as the um, mainstream of economics has it, and that's for sure. And um, in that respect, I do hope very much that the mainstream are right and we're wrong. And of course, that could very well be true. Our book is a warning about what might happen and that it could well be that people will have to adjust quite sharply in order to take account of the underlying demographic globalization and other problems that we may have to face over the next few decades.
2: I think one of the most optimistic things to have happened is probably Charles and I have been Surprised by the attention that the book has got very positively. But the fact that it is being discussed much more, I think, is an important part of that story. And if, in a very perverse way, we were to get inflation of 4% or 5% over the next year or two, for whatever reason, whether it's for reasons that we have outlined, purely cyclical or something else entirely, I think one of the things that can happen under those circumstances is that policymakers can start paying a lot more attention to these issues, which really if you start to fix them when they actually appear in society, it will be far too late to deal with them. But if they're preemptive in that nature or preemptive in their policies, then I think we've got a short at at least mitigating some of the issues. And for that, we need quicker action. So anything that leads to it, whether it's uh, the thesis that we put together or any other entirely, set of ev- uh, entirely different set of events that transpire, that'll be something that uh, gives us a little bit more hope.
1: One thing that I would end by saying We really seriously do not think that most of our societies, including in the US, including in my own country, including in Europe, are ready for the problems of an aging society. There are going to be many, and how to look after the old and cope with the problems of an aging society is something that we really think has not yet had anything like the... um, consideration that it deserves and should have and will have to have over coming decades.
0: Thank you, Charles Manoj for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to discuss your research in more detail. Thank you very much. Pleasure. It's been great, thank you. Thank you, gentlemen.